Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we are looking back 30 years to the 1990 Indianapolis 500, the first win for our friend, the amazing Ari Leyendijk, driving for Doug Shearson, his Lola Chevrolet, ended up being the class of the field, but the main story here is our details in more than a half hour and pretty solid minutia is the lack of expectations for Leyendijk and that smaller outfit to do what they did. Some important milestones in this race as well, which we get into towards the end, and also a nod from Ari to the Junior Open Wheel Training Series where he got his start, and coincidentally I got my start as well as a young mechanic back in the mid-1980s. So let's get going and just celebrate the Dutchman, his first finest day at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, knowing that a second win was on the cards towards the latter stages of the 1990s. All brought to you by Cooper Tires. The Justice Brothers are celebrating 75 years of the Indy 500, torontomotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA. Mr. Leyendijk, we are looking back 30 years on a delightful win for you in that red, white, and blue Domino's Lola Chevy celebration this year as well as your young countryman, Renus VK, is wearing a helmet livery paying tribute to your 1990 win. Figure it might be fun to go back and revisit month of May in 1990. Maybe we should start talking about the team because that's one of the things that might be part of the underexplored aspects of this 1990 victory. Wasn't with Penske, wasn't with Newman Haas. It was about Doug Shearson racing. Not a powerhouse yeah. in terms of name, but boy, there was a lot of talent. John Dick, your race engineer, Neil Micklewright, team manager, Mike Battersby is your crew chief. Tell us about this team that knocked down the Giants. Yeah, I mean, that's really how it went down. I mean, it also, uh, you mentioned uh, Newman House and Penske. Um, then there was the Craco team with uh, Bobby Rahal and Ellens Jr. Of course, those guys were always super strong. And and uh, you look at those big teams and you look at the resources they had. Uh, there was definitely more than we what we had, but uh, we had a, a small group of really clever people. And the one thing that we also had going for us at Indianapolis was that uh, we did uh, get the Chevy engine or the team got the Chevy engine awarded to them after uh, using um, Cosworth in 88 and 89. And um, when I signed with the team, I didn't know that. Um, it was a real pleasant surprise at the beginning of the season where Doug called me and said, hey, we got the Chevy engine. He told me he was working on it, but uh, there was no guarantee. Um, and I think... You know, I had run really well in 88 here and in 89 as well. Dick Simon really taught me a lot about oval setup in Indianapolis 500 uh, setup. And um, that knowledge uh, really worked well for us in 1990. So the car was good right off the bat. And I was able to run pretty much quick in every type of condition. Uh, hot, cooler, windy, no wind. Um, and going into the race, I just felt super, super confident just because the car was so good on on full tank runs and on uh, long runs. And I was 
you know, I hadn't won an IndyCar race yet, but of course I've won races and I knew that, hey, if everything comes together, I could win this one. So you mentioned a really interesting starting point, that being the Chevy engine. For folks who weren't alive then or weren't following or didn't know, the Ilmore-built Chevrolet engine, just as they do today in the NTT IndyCar series, those were the dominant, dominant jewels to get your hands on. But unlike today, where half of the IndyCar field in 2020 actually a little bit more, 17 of the 33 entries will be powered by Chevrolet. Mm -hmm. They were in shorter supply, but they were also honest because they had the ability to pick and choose who they wanted to work with. They were highly prized items that everybody wanted, but if you couldn't get one, if they didn't think you were going to make the most out of these highly potent engines, you would be forced to use something else. Share with folks yeah. how transformative this was for you and the team. Yeah. I think it had a lot to do with the fact that um, um, the Cosworth uh, DFS engine uh, that we ran in 1989 and the, the model before it in 1988, um, with Simon Racing, we had done some really good things with that engine. And Ilmore knew that, hey... Um, we have a stronger engine than Dick Simon is using there with Ari behind the wheel. And uh, I think, not to pat myself on the back, but part of the the uh, decision-making on Ilmore's part that, hey, we should uh, get Chevy, uh, a Chevy engine to uh, Shearson is the fact that Ari is going to be the driver there. Um, this was this was what I was told by, by Doug, and this is what I'm telling you now. And and I think it's based on the stuff that we did with the Cosworth engine. So, um, and it wasn't fair if you look at it. You know, not every team could get one of those engines. And I don't think Ilmore had the capability to build engines for 33 entries anyway, or for 17. But uh, if you were part of that small uh, group that had them, you, uh, you, you knew for sure you'd be competitive. And... Uh, you could not win at Indy without an Ilmore engine in those days. So looking at this team you're working with, would have to assume that you and John Dick, who's working this year again with Dragon Speed, Ben Hanley. So here John is on his 30th anniversary of winning the race as well as a race engineer. Tell me about the rapport the two of you built because, again, as a call it underdog team, you, you guys made a statement, Ari, qualifying in the front row, third overall. Uh, before we start talking about the race and some of those things, tell us about getting ready for qualifying, the rapport you had with John, and how, really, you guys were making some really, really good speed. Yeah, I remember so much of it so well because uh, we got to the point where the car was, um, we were getting ready for qualifying and we were working on pure speed. And uh, back then, you know, you were allowed to run as much as you wanted to. So we ran a lot. Uh, the car was uh, good. And we just were refining it through the week. And we were um, getting to the point where we had these uh, different shock absorbers. Uh, we had Coney's. And we had another brand, and I don't, I don't remember the brand. They were from, I think they might have been 
designed by, and I forget his name real quick. That's, that's something I do forget, his names. Um, he used to be a race engineer also for Target uh, with Chip Ganassi in 1992. And he also made his own shock absorbers. And I believe it was his shocks that we ended up uh, using after all. Um, going down the back straight, I remember this so well with John. He says, so what's the difference between the two shocks? I go, well, the handling is the same. But there's something weird going on on the back straight where I can actually feel the car just go up and down just ever so slightly as I'm going down the straight. And it doesn't do that with the other shocks. So we got to the point that it became so detailed to get more speed out of it. And, uh, yeah, John and I had a great working relationship uh, during the month of May, and the car was just spot on the whole time. Um, of course, weather makes the car a little bit different uh, throughout the race that was but uh, yeah and I think you know looking back I qualified third and I think I might have been a bit conservative on on the arrow uh, not taking enough wing out but I think as I got more experienced I was able to trim the car out more than I was in 1990 let's let's say uh, you know although I had five years of experience I still uh, Indy's a place where you never stop learning these little details and i loved reading about how your team apparently got a hold of a new lola speedway underwing cost eighteen thousand dollars as i read but it arrived during the second week of practice and time trials so you guys had to effectively start the setup work over again or at least you know do some some new refinements with some new aerodynamics beneath the car but obviously that worked well when landing on the front yeah. row. Well, it was, it was similar to the one that came off, but I think the one that came off was uh, a bit flexy. And then, then you also get, you know, some aero uh, changes. So they, uh, I think it, it also, and, and I don't really remember that part of it, but Doug was very, um, to Doug Shears and the Indy 500 is what mattered. Pretty much the whole season mattered, but, for him, the Indy 500 was what mattered the most. And he felt we should replace that just to make sure that it would be good for the race. And uh, so he, he he spared nothing when it came to uh, this race. So from the race day, we had some pretty heavy clouds, very overcast morning. I know there were concerns about whether the skies might open up a little bit. But things did actually lighten up, and just as we got into uh, the command to start engines and such, had more favorable conditions for sure with some sun. Emerson Fittipaldi from Team Penske was on pole. Remember, he led away at the start, blasting into turn one. Rick Mears, his teammate, the great Rick Mears, followed behind him. You were third into turn one. Bobby Rahal was behind you. And little Al from the Craco team. Mo in that first stint really motored away, and you seemed to lose ground a little bit. What was the opening stint like for you, Ari? Yeah, Emerson was pretty much untouchable for the longest time. Um, he was more than a half a lap ahead of pretty much anybody at one point. And I kept on the radio with Doug. I kept asking him, "Okay, what's the gap to the leader?" 
and it was like 15 seconds, 16, 17. And I go, okay, that's, uh, that's manageable. Cause I was having a lot of problems with, uh, push in the car with understeer so i had to wait for the first pit stop to to put some more front wing in the car and then the second stint i didn't put you know a ton of wing in it i just kind of did it step by step so then i needed more front wing and then by the time i had made like a couple of changes in the first three pit stops the car basically came alive and it was uh, not pushing anymore it was of course it wasn't loose it was just really spot on and that's when I started to pick up the pace quite a bit. But um, I, I ran the race like Rick Mears would. You know, you work towards the end. And um, I, I just never panicked. I never thought, oh, I'm too far behind. Because I always knew how far I was behind. And it was never that far behind that I had to worry about it. Like being put lap down, uh, a lap down or something. And um, then the blistering started. For Emerson, it was basically uh, the end for him, for his race. For Alonso Jr., it was also the end. I had blisters. Uh, I guess Bobby had blisters too. But for us, they weren't as bad as the other guys. And uh, so in the end, it came down to the two of us. So looking at the tires, we had some issues here where uh, Danny Sullivan crashed somewhat early in the race. Uh, coming back from the, from that crash, the restart, uh, you lost a few more spots during that restart. You'd commented about having big understeer and at the next pit stop, you asked the team to go to a right rear Goodyear tire with more stagger, something bigger. Saw Mm -hmm. the note that you added a little bit more left front wing, all things to get the car to rotate more on its own, get rid of some of that understeer. Tell us about those effects of having to improve the handling of your car while it appeared for you, you weren't one of the leaders to really struggle with tire problems. Meanwhile, Emo, Mears, Mario, little Al, uh, they did some big, bad blisters for them, but not necessarily for you. No. And, uh, I think Mears pretty much all day had a very loose car right from the get go because, uh, uh, he fell back also pretty quickly, but, um, you know, back then we had so much more time to practice. So we would, for instance, try different staggers and with the numbers in my head, I knew, okay, if I go to this stagger, then the car is going to change a little bit like, you know, this much, like, let's say 5% or, you know, you, you kind of know that a half a turn will do this to the car. And so I could exactly tell them like hey give me a half a turn or give me a turn or give me this stagger tire then then i know it will cure the problem that i have now and that's how you by way of practicing so much and, and just learning the different setups with the different uh, front wing angles um you kind of know what you need a half a turn or a full turn or maybe even more and then the same goes with the stagger so it it it's really cool because now I just spoke to Renus uh, VK this morning about uh, his car and he was telling me a few things and you know, it all comes back to me like, yeah, I remember that. And okay, I said, well, if you have that, you should do this. And, um, that's, that's all part of what makes you, you know, good about speedways, knowing your car and knowing your tools. And, um, but like I said, I never panicked about running around in fifth at one point. I think I never lower than fifth. 
um, because I knew that a little change here and a little change there, we would all get to, it would all come together. And as far as the blistering goes, that's just, I think that's sometimes a matter of luck with teams and with setup. And I think, uh, I don't know what the prescribed tire pressure was. And uh, there were rumblings back then that Penske were playing around with tire pressures too much and pumping up the tires too hard to begin with. And then they would overheat right away. I don't know. That's a possibility that they had that problem, but uh, we certainly didn't. So, so talking about problems here, so Emerson Fittipaldi leads 115 of the first 117 laps, Ari. Then the blistering struck. He went to lap down. Penske had really dominated, you know, the first 60% of the racer. So we get just past that halfway point. It's Emma leading before the tire problems. Bobby Rahal, Little Al, and you were all clustered together in your Lola Chevys. Uh, tell me about the fight you guys had again. I know we're talking just before Mo started to have problems and really lost his chance of winning. But tell us about this fight between you, Ray Hall, and Little Al, because I seem to recall that one was pretty darn cool. Yeah, there was a. We were kind of running somewhat close together, but there wasn't really passing going on between the three of us. I think there were still some gaps. But then, um, um, Mo, when he had his problems. It changed everything, and then Al also uh, began to have uh, problems. I think the Al was so bad, I, I passed him. And when I passed little Al, it literally like I was passing a guy who had been down like four laps, you know, so much off the pace because it really affected his pace, and he was trying to stretch it out to make a pit stop without having to make an extra pit stop, but that didn't work. Um and like I said, after tuning the car in with front wing and everything, I think I was like six or seven seconds behind at one point. I could see Ray Hall go into one as I came out of four. And then the next lap, I could see that it, you know, he was a lot closer. And then I really, besides having a good car, I just got really, it just kind of like somebody kicked me in the butt and goes, okay, go for it. And I just went for it. And I was running at, nearly qualifying speeds uh, catching and and within a matter of maybe three, four, five laps, uh, he was really close and that's when I was able to pass him. Um, The pass was pretty cool. It was, I came down, I came out of turn two and uh, there was, um, Scott Goodyear was there who also drove for Shearson, but he had an older car. He had a 1989 chassis with a Judd engine. And uh, I picked off a toe down the back straight from him. Then I picked the toe from Rahal, who was just passing him. And then I decided to go for it because my momentum was so good. I And I stuck it down there on the bottom next to Rahal going into three, and that's when I passed him. And it was... Uh, it was a pass I think he didn't really expect because he kind of turned in on me and then he saw me and then he kind of got, kind of went back, you know, because he thought, oh, there's a guy on the inside. And uh, and from there on, uh, I was just praying for no yellows. That was a really light race on yellows. There were not many yellows. And I was just praying for no more yellows because they could just really mess your race up. So the impressive part here, Ari, is by lap 150, 
So 75% of the race down. Emmo's fallen back, tire problems. Bobby Rahal had inherited the lead. He pulled out a f- almost a four and a half second gap on you. And mm-hmm. that was not <laughs> four and a half seconds with 50 laps to go. It's not impossible, obviously. But that's not exactly the two of you running nose to tail. Share with us the the efforts here to have to try and chase him down. I know that, you know, Emmo, for example, uh, you were trying to get past him. He was trying not to go a lap down. You're trying to catch Ray Hall. Emmo, I recall, got in the way. I don't know. I don't want to say got in the way, but he was fighting to avoid being lapped or maybe even lapped a second time. Uh, he might have uh, ruined one of the runs you had going on Ray Hall. Yeah, it was it was easy. Uh, I don't want to sound. The car was at that point. It just not that it came alive. It was at its best, and the speeds I could run were just you know two twenty two, two twenty one. I think it was, and and it within a matter of laps, I was he was you know I could see him go into one as I was coming out for four, and then all of a sudden it's only halfway down the straightaway he was, and it just kind of gave me wings, and I was able to to reel him in pretty quickly. Um, It was uh, almost surprising to me how easy I was able to close the gap and then to pass him. And then um, I knew I had that pace, of course. And what I did was when I passed him, I went, you know, I just kept going as fast as I could to get a gap because the more people you get between you and the guy in second, you know, it makes it easier on, on if, you, if there's a restart or or just makes it easier to, to, to fill the gap between you and him with a bunch of other people. So I kept passing uh, back markers uh, pretty fast and aggressively as I could. And then the last 10 laps, I was just managing it, basically, because we had to make a pit stop. And I know Bobby had to make a pit stop. And that's the pit stop if you uh, look at the... At, uh, at the video, I didn't want that drink bottle. I didn't want that drink bottle to pit stop before, I believe, either, or the one before that. I just stopped taking the drink bottle because I didn't want to get, I didn't want to stall the car just because I was trying to get a drink. And those things were, uh, those cars were, were easier to stall. So my focus was uh, super, super high, and those cars were also not that easy to get into first gear. And on the video, you can see I look down on the carpet and I'm like really focusing on getting that thing in first gear and making sure it's in first gear. So the pit stop went well. I came out ahead of him and then I pulled away and then I knew I just had to manage. But uh, yeah, I was driving that race uh, in the lead as if I'd done it a hundred times before. So uh, it goes to show you when you have a lot of confidence in your car and your team, you can pull off quite a bit. So let's talk about that last pit stop. You and Ray Hall fighting, as you mentioned, you end up using Scott Goodyear as a bit of a pick, got alongside Bobby Ray Hall, approaching turn three, Bobby gave up the spot. Things are going well, but things aren't exactly guaranteed for you at this point. You come in for that last pit stop, recall reading that you took on new tires, Ray Hall went to used, I'm I'm not sure why, but I can tell you what happened from there, Ari. You pulled out 10 seconds on Bobby to win the race. Uh, you want to talk about making a statement 
Uh, no, after the race, you said you thought your car was better in traffic than uh, your closest rivals. But share with us those closing laps, drawing away from Ray Hall. Uh, what What's going through your mind? Are you allowing the, the possibility of winning to sink in before you get to the checkered flag? Oh, definitely. Yeah, the last 10 laps, I was thinking way too much about winning. But then I said to myself, okay, just don't think about anything anymore just focus and bring it back home. But um, there was things going through my mind. Like one of the, I remember two thoughts and people have probably read about this, but uh, one of them was like, I was thinking about my parents. They were sitting in their little living room in the Netherlands with my in-laws. They were all, I knew they were going to watch the race there. So I could kind of picture them in the, in the living room watching me. And the other thing was going like, man, I'm winning a million bucks here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's the other thing that always flashed, that I remember flashing through my mind. But um, no, I, after the pit stop, I the car was still that good, and I just pulled away. And then I also got blisters, and that was the second time on the day that I uh, got blisters. And um, but they were, you know, I could see in my mirror they were very small, nothing big like Emerson had, and. Um, uh, that's the thing. We had we had two tires, two sets of tires with blisters, but they were just, you know, not as bad as you could live with it. Let's put it that way. And I remember doing laps at the end of like 2.15. And I'm going like, oh, 2.15 is not that quick, but Ray Hall was doing like 2.12, you know? Yeah. Uh, because they were keeping me informed of what, what he was doing as well. But the gap that I pulled in the beginning of those, uh, on that set of new tires was like you said, it was actually, it went up to like almost 13 seconds. And then I just started to, you know, coast a little bit more and just kind of manage the gap. So every lap I knew where where he was, what the gap was, and I just kept that kind of in check. And uh, I still think at the end it was a 10 second, I won by 10 seconds, something like that. Yeah. So I, I allowed, you know, three seconds to go away in the last couple, in the last 10 laps. But, uh, yeah, it was in a way a dominant win if you look at it. Um, yeah, it was my first win at India. I had really no idea what to say in winner's circle. Well, how's this? I was stumbling a little bit there, but uh, yeah. It's your it first cool. win at the Indy 500. It's also your first IndyCar win. I mean, I'm just saying, if you're going to get one, your first one, like Alexander Rossi learned a few years ago and such, not a bad thing, my man. I mean, that... Does that even sink in at all that you finally broken through or does the fact that you've just won Indy just override everything else? No, I think it overrode everything else just because, you know, finally you have a win and boy, here you are in the Indy 500 winning the Indy 500. And, uh, it got pretty crazy after that, of course, with all the, the media attention and flying to New York and going on the talk shows. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, quite a whirlwind after that, but it was obviously all worth it. And to this day, uh, the Indy 500 is, is kind of what makes you uh, what you are as far as your racing career. If, you, if in your racing career there's an Indy 500 win to be included, it just it caps it all off. And um, by own admission, uh, I've never claimed to be one of the greatest IndyCar drivers there was. I've never claimed to be one of the best drivers. But I know that I was always pretty damn good at the Indy 500. And what a place to be good at. 
couple other things jump out here. Ari, these just some little factoids. So your Shearson team, again, by no means the biggest or with the biggest reputation, won the pit stop battle during race day. Fastest combined pit stops. Your seven stops took a total one minute and 55 seconds. Next closest was Bobby Rahal's Gals Craco team, two minutes and one second. So yeah, wasn't just you performing on the track. Your crew was also kicking some ass on pit lane. I know. And that's just, you know, that's amazing. If you look at, um, uh, at that performance. And if you look at that now, you know, back then, I don't think the emphasis was so much on pit stops as there, there is now, but still it was important to be quick in the pits because you knew that every second you spent longer in the pits, you know, you lose, uh, you lose uh, the length of a football field uh, over the other competitors. So, but yeah, that was very impressive. Um, you know, Emerson, of course, had an extra pit stop, and I believe Alonso Jr. might have as well. But still, uh, being out of all 33 teams, uh, spending least amount of time in the pits obviously helps. Another thing, too, just in terms of interesting facts, you won for Lola in terms of chassis constructor. It's a strange thing to consider, Ari, knowing how many years you might have spent in a Lola, how huge Lola's presence was in IndyCar for a couple of decades. In 1990, there were 21 Lolas in the field. You won. That was only their second victory at the Indy 500. It was also their last, which again, another little stat that seems so strange, knowing that seemingly year after year, more than half the field were filled with Lola's. Uh, You're obviously not there representing them as a chassis manufacturer, but nonetheless, is there any sense of pride there too, that you got Lola's second and final win at the Speedway? Well, there were definitely a lot of pride there, and it goes way back to the 70s. Um, I drove uh, in the European Super V Championship with a Lola, and I won the series in 1977. And um, we had the ties with Lola because of us having one of their chassis. And we were a customer. We bought the car. But um, for 1978, um, the Super V Series went from air-cooled to water. And they actually gave me a new car, to run the series. Uh, so I had a really good relationship with Eric Broadley and the team at uh, Lola. And I've always, I've always had this, uh, this kind of love affair with the brand and I've always found it a shame that it uh, eventually, you know, disappeared. And um, Eric Broadley and then later his son uh, were just great people to work with. I ran in Formula 3 in 78 I also ran the only Lola in the field, um, which they also supplied to me. So, you know, they gave me a Super V and a Formula 3, and in 78, I ran a bunch of races in those cars. So, so yeah, there was a lot of history there with me and, and Lola, and definitely great to know. I didn't realize that after me, nobody really won it. Yeah. Yours, uh, yours was the last. It was either Penske's or Renard's uh, and whatnot. And then we moved into the uh, Delara yeah. G-Force era and such uh, into where we are today. Well, 
last question, Ari, and I know you've answered this many times before, but it's always, it's a beautiful thing to hear. So you were known and renowned as a talent and star in IndyCar coming into 1990, hadn't won your first race yet, but you had shown, and granted, you're also driving for smaller teams, but there was no doubt you were going to become a race winner. Didn't know if you're going to be an Indy 500 race winner till you proved that 30 years ago. How did this victory change your life then? And looking back now with 30 years of time, also knowing you added another Indy 500 win, how did this set things off for you? Changes as a younger man then, and even today looking back on the lasting effects 30 years ago. Yeah, I think it's just a way of tradition in, in the United States where the Indy 500 is more important for drivers to win than the championship. And many drivers have said it before, you know, it doesn't matter what you win, but if you win the 500 and after you've won it, they always announce that fact that, you know, they announce you, if they would introduce you to a crowd of people, they would introduce you as an Indy 500 winner. They would never say the Phoenix 200 winner or the, you know, the Milwaukee 200 winner or the Elkhart Lake winner. So uh, that recognition that you immediately get if you want to call it that status, uh, that's something that has always had a positive uh, effect uh, for me. I, I can say that I always tell people nothing nothing bad, nothing, anything bad ever came out of winning that race. Only good things came out of that in a lot of different aspects. The only thing that it doesn't guarantee is that you always get a ride. <laughs> <laughs> because in 91 I had probably my best season um it's another indy 500 i could have won but we dropped out early with a spark plug and we lost a lap early i mean and i finished third the year after i was without a ride and that was because you know uh granatelli uh, folded his team and then by the time i knew that the team wasn't going to be around there was really nothing else for me to to get a ride in 92 i had a couple of races with chip ganashi but it doesn't always guarantee a, a full season drive. Let's put it that way. But, but that was more circumstantial than anything, I guess. Crazy sponsor stuff with Uno, a card game from back then, which was your sponsor in that day glow, orangish car, uh, reddish orange car. Yeah, amazing how what you would think would be just everything perfectly paved and laid out easy for you after winning the Indy yeah. 500 less than two years later. Uh, things start to go sideways a little bit. But, hey, uh, you put up some other good work there, my friend, in 1997 in particular. So uh, not not too bad to have two Indy 500 rings to wear. Well, thank you, as, uh, as always, for making time. Ari, love spinning yarns with you. I still have yeah. our podcast that I need. I'll probably save it for the offseason. Uh, the podcast we did with you, Rick Mears, and Michael Andretti talking about one of our shared passions, the series where I got my start as a young mechanic, Super V. I'll save that for the off season, but that's another fun conversation yeah, we've had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Super V series, you know, I just talked about it a little bit, but the Super V series, I was in that way too long. But <laughs> they made you, you know, good, the, though. The story about that is like, you know, I just was stuck in that series. In Europe, I did Formula 3 a little bit and then Super V, but... 
you know, the fact that I just kept going and my dad helped me, of course, and we just kept on doing Super V races. And then I ended up in the States. And when Provimi said, I want you to drive a Super V, I'm like, ah, shit, not again, Super V. <laughs> but I go, you know what? I'll just go out and win it and then I'll drive IndyCar after that. And that's how it went. So, yeah, Super V is definitely important for me. Thanks again to Ari for taking some time to roll back the clock do a pretty deep dive into that day where they nailed the setup. He was 100% on his game. And boy, this was a big deal at the time. Remember seeing him two or three races later, and it was just a flurry of interest in him. Reporters mobbing him. Boy, just a wonderful, wonderful time. Transformational time for him and the Lion Dyke family that so many folks have come to know over the years. If this is your first time listening, you might check out marshallpruittpodcast.com. Got more than 900 episodes available there, plus a subscribe page that has all the easiest ways to get every episode as it comes out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a number of other ways to get the goodies when they are hot and fresh. All right. Well, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our little podcast brought to you by the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com, Cooper Tires, Bell Racing Helmets USA. Thank you for listening.